This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This is the second episode from the concluding conference on the research project Integration and Tradition, the making of the Syriac Orthodox Church in Sweden. In this episode, Dr. Henrik Jonsen will discuss results in the form of a presentation on the topic Hierarchy, Democracy and Religious Tradition, the emergence of Syriac Orthodox Congregation Organization in Sweden. And afterwards, Dr. Andreas Schmöller will offer some reflections. perspective in our project has been about organization and organizing or the way these three selected Syriac Orthodox congregations have organized themselves on the local level in Sweden since the 1970s. <clears throat> so in this paper I will present some preliminary results. Um, there are, unfortunately there are still some archival documents that I really want to look into and I didn't reach the end until this conference, but uh, so therefore it's still in some sense preliminary. <clears throat> so I will present some preliminary results from our project concerning congregation organization or the way these congregations are organized in certain respects. So I have not the intention of presenting all our results nor all aspects on how these congregations are organized but I will focus on certain aspects that I think is important. <clears throat> and I also, I also will um, draw your attention to some tensions and notable changes <clears throat> that has been and is still important when it comes to how these congregations are organized. There are already some important studies that indicate that, that religious organizations often change due to migration and perhaps that is not a surprise. But there are still, <clears throat> with a few minor contributions, no major study on how um, the Syriac Orthodox congregations in Sweden have organized themselves. And my source material for this paper is mainly our interviews with members of uh, these three congregations, but also interviews with representatives of uh, some external actors like people from the YMCA, KFUM, um, and, uh, <coughs> uh, <coughs> um, and also some inter interviews with um, people from the Swedish Agency uh, for Support of Faith Communities, SST in Swedish. And uh, that's one part, the interviews, and then it's also a great part of this paper is based upon archival documents that has not been studied, uh, not very much at all, uh, when it comes to the Syriac Orthodox Church and its uh, archives from the Swedish Agency for Support for Faith Communities, archives from the Church of Sweden, and um, one of the most important, the, uh, the archives from the YMCA. And all of, all of these 
institutions and organizations has been important for uh, how uh, these, the Syriac Orthodox Church has gradually established themselves in Sweden. Uh, religious organizations are both well-established and relative, a relatively new research area, and it depends on uh, your perspective. Um, in the history of Christianity, there are, uh, have, has of course been many idealized or theologically um, uh, determined perspectives on religious organizations. Um, so in that sense, organizations are uh, well known and quite well studied. But my focus here is not uh, on a normative or a normalized form of organization, but the actual organization uh, in these three uh, local congregations. <clears throat> no matter the extent to, the extent to which uh, the form of these organizations are adjusted to certain ideals or norms or not. Uh, an organization and so also a religious organization can of course be defined in a number of ways. And in the following, um, I will limit myself to um, two specific perspectives. On the one hand, I will look at uh, these congregations in terms of religious authority. And secondly, in terms of internal and external actors of importance for the congregations. And uh, I will in a, in a short while, I will uh, define what I mean by actor. Um, it is debated to which extent religious organizations are different from non-religious organizations. Um, and one way of defining religious organizations as something at least partly different is to define them in terms of religious authority. That is, and here I'm quoting Mark Chavez, uh, an American sociologist, um, is as <coughs> organizations in which at least some activities are controlled, whatever their content or the motivations of the individuals performing them by religious authority. And by religious authority, it is here implied a form of authority that attempts, um, and this is also Mark Chavez, that attempts to enforce its order and reach its ends by controlling the access of, individual, of individuals to some desired goods where the legitimation uh, of that control includes some supernatural component. And secondly, a religious organization will in the following be understood uh, not as something static, but as something that more or less constantly changes over time. Uh, even if there might be established ideals for how a specific religious organization should look like, uh, a religious organization also changes over time uh, due to various factors, just like other types of organizations. And here I'm following uh, something called uh, uh, actor network theory, where one speaks about various actors that constantly determines and governs what an organization looks like at a given space and time. And an actor is here understood, and here I'm following Bruno Latour, uh, as, an, as any element which makes other elements of an organization dependent upon itself. And such actors 
can be individuals, it can be groups, institutions, but even non-human actors uh, like legislation or normative ideals of various kinds. So I will now take a closer look at uh, our three congregations and a selection of some important actors, external and internal, that seems to have been and still are important for the way these organizations or, or these congregations are organized. <clears throat> um, I will mainly focus on what the organization looked like today or when we studied these congregations, but I will also add uh, a historical perspective regarding some of these factors or actors. And one important external actor or factor uh, with effect on the organization is the civil legislation in Sweden, especially concerning so-called faith communities. According to the Act on Religious Communities from 1998, a faith community in Sweden is a community intended for religious activity. There are two basic requirements in order to be registered as a faith community in this legal sense in Sweden. First, the community needs to have statutes that regulate the aim of the organization and how decisions are to be carried out uh, within the community. And secondly, the community needs to have an executive board or something similar. The same legislation also pertains to parts of a faith community, that is, a congregation. There is thus, since the end of, since the, end of the 1990s at least, a clear incitement for a democratic way of organizing a faith community or a religious congregation in Sweden, no matter how the religious community might be organized elsewhere in the world, for instance, in the Middle East. <clears throat> the importance of a democratic organization is furthermore motivated by the requirements for civil subsidies or civil grants to faith communities in Sweden. And they are administered by the Swedish Agency for Support for faith communities. This civic support for faith communities was introduced uh, in 1971. Uh, and from 1974, uh, these subsidies were extended to also include religious bodies that was not members of the Swedish Free Church Council. So first, uh, the, uh, these subsidies were given to uh, free churches, Protestant free churches, and in 1974 they were extended to the Catholic Church, uh, Jewish communities, and in 1975 also to the Syriac Orthodox Church and similar Orthodox um, denominations. <clears throat> so since 1975 these subsidies were also distributed to the Orthodox uh, Church and the Oriental, the Orthodox churches and their own oriental churches in Sweden, and thereby also to the Syriac Orthodox Church, through something that was called Oöker, the Economic Board for Orthodox and Oriental Churches in Sweden. And in order to receive these grants, according to the new law from 1998, a religious organization needed to be registered as a faith community 
and thus it needed to meet the requirements that I just mentioned um, in order to be eligible for such uh, subsidies. But moreover, it was also required that the faith community upholds certain fundamental civic values. And in the government bill related to the new law in 1998, these values further uh, was further specified and included values such as equal equality between the sexes, but also principles compatible with fundamental democratic civic ideals. Uh, in a civic commission called Civic Support for Faith Communities in a Multi-Religious Sweden from 2018, uh, where, the condition, uh, where the conditions and effects of these uh, civic sub subsidies were investigated, uh, the economic importance of these subsidies for faith communities were also investigated through a survey. And, and from this survey, it's clear that the importance differed above all between faith communities with a long history in Sweden, such as uh, the Pentecostal churches or uh, other uh, Protestant churches, and newly established communities, such as the Syriac Orthodox Church. For the latter, such as the Syriac Orthodox Church, uh, the subsidies were far more important uh, than for the Protestant churches. For two-thirds of these communities, uh, the civic subsidies were one of the three most important uh, sources of income for these uh, communities. And for one-third, it was even the most important source of income, according to this survey. So the civic subsidies and related civic legislation are surely important external factors behind the democratic development uh, of the way the Syriac Orthodox Church has, organized, uh, has been organized in Sweden and how local congregations has gradually organized themselves. However, uh, <coughs> much of this legislation uh, is uh, later than the 1970s when uh, the first Syriac congregations were formed in Sweden. And um, uh, so um, th this civil legislation is, is clearly not the only external factor that promotes a democratic, uh, or did promote a uh, democratic development. Another important factor that um, has been evident from the archival documents um, uh, are the YMCA and the Swedish Free Church Council and uh, the Church of Sweden. Uh, from 1977 to 1979, the YMCA received civic support from the Swedish Migration Board for a long, large and long project called Project for Certain Refugees from Turkey, Syria and Lebanon. And this project was administered by the YMCA. Um, and one of its explicit aims was to help the Syriac Orthodox Church and the Assyrian Syriac ethnic organizations 
to organize themselves and establish administration routines, economic routines, and how to organize in relation to the Swedish legislation. Um, and for this reason, uh, a so-called central project group was initiated already in 1977 with representatives from the Syriac Orthodox Church, the YMCA, and the Church of Sweden, and the Swedish Free Church Council. Within this project, a complete com proposal for how to organize the Syriac Orthodox Church on the local, regional, and national level was elaborated. On each level, the project group suggested a twofold structure where the clergy was responsible for the religious rituals and liturgy and a democratically elected executive board were responsible, were responsible for economy and the, <coughs> and the administration on each level. On the local level, the priest was explicitly excluded from the board. The priest could be approached for advice, but was denied any voting rights. This proposed organization do largely correspond with how the Syriac Orthodox Church is organized today, at least on the national and the local level. And so far, I don't know exactly, um, I, as, as far as I know, in 1978, uh, they uh, they voted for and agreed upon to establish to, to establish um, this model on uh, the national level. And I, when I reach, <laughs> when I have time to read through all documents, I'm pretty sure that they will follow also when it comes to the congregations. But unfortunately, I don't know the end of that story. So uh, by now. Um, but one more thing is important here, and it's um, so um, even if this uh, uh, proposed model for how to organize the church uh, in some sense were related to legislation, it most likely also was motivated by the above-mentioned actors, like uh, the YMCA, the Swedish uh, State Church, and the, Free uh, and the Free Church Council, because all of them um, explicitly in the documents write that they want the Syriac Orthodox Church to become more democratic. And they are um, explicitly disappointed with when the Archbishop Aboudi uh, at first says that he also wants to turn the church in a more democratic direction, but then he um, get a bit pressed and um, move um, or deny that he will move the church in, in that direction. And it's, it's evident that these three organizations want to, to, to change the the way the church is organized, when, when, um, even if they say that we just want to help them, but they also want to transform the church. 
Um, and I think that is very important. Um, uh, and uh, an important aspect to how and why the Syriac Orthodox Church looked like the, it does today. Um, and I want to highlight some aspects of how these democratic ideals seems to play out in the studied three congregations during the period when we studied these congregations. So I now turn to some internal actors. And then it's, of course, uh, the annual meeting who often uh, decide when it comes to uh, the main issues when it comes to the congregation. And of course, the executive board with laymen and the priest, and especially the relation between the board and the priest, because I, this is the most important relation when it comes to how the congregation is organized and how uh, these different aspects play out uh, in the concrete cases. Um, already when the first priest, Josef Said, arrived in Sweden in December 1970, there was a church board with seven members in Södertälje. But when Josef Said arrived, he immediately took over the chairmanship over the board. And after a couple of years, without a priest, because Josef Said retired, because of, most likely because of some uh, internal conflict in 1972. And then when a new priest arrived, Gabriel Aydin, uh, in 1975, also Aydin became the chairman of the national board. <clears throat> and it was called uh, the Assyrian Orthodox Congregation in Sweden at that time. And according to some archival documents, the first board was not appointed through regular democratic election, but by appointment by Gabriel Aydin. This initial role of the first priests in Sweden seems to have gradually been renegotiated re uh, when we move forward in the 1970s. Um, especially when we reach the end of the 1970s. And in the end, the organization that then gradually emerges, uh, the central initial role of the priest is partly reduced to a position where the priest on the local level, and now I'm just speaking of our three congregations, where the priest is mainly responsible for religious rituals and the liturgy. While the democratically elected executive board is responsible for the economy, the administration of all the activities, the employments, the church buildings, and as it seems, um, uh, even if, uh, as it seems, these two domains are not always kept as strictly apart as in other cases, and sometimes the board and the priest collaborate more, and in certain cases they are more strictly separated. But how then are the clergy and the executive board related, and how do they cooperate when governing these two areas in these three uh, congregations? In all three communities, the priest is employed by the congregation, and I think that's quite normal, uh, even if we have not investigated that for all 
congregations in Sweden. And it's the annual meeting that takes the formal decision. Um, but the proposal of a suitable priest often comes from the uh, executive board. And it's the latter that is also responsible for administration of this employment. Actually, the executive board is also responsible for more or less all activities in these three local congregations besides the, besides the religious rituals and the liturgy. The priest might take part in the board meetings, but he is neither the head of this um, board nor a member of the board, and he has no voting rights. Uh, and this is different compared to the first priests in Sweden. Um, and the head of the board is a layman. Already when recruiting a new priest, it's the ex executive board that push for and take initiatives for a new possible candidate. And when they find one, it's the board that often take care of issues like residence permit, work permit, or finding a new apartment, etc., for the new priest. Even if the priest, uh, often in our free congregations, uh, pay the rent himself. But there are cases when the congregation also pay, uh, pay for the apartment of the priest. So the priest is accordingly subservient to the congregation with its annual meeting and the board, but with a quite independent responsibility for all the services in the church. And sometimes the priest acts, according to our interviews and etc., Sometimes the priest acts quite independently and, and in a strong way within the confines of the church and when it comes to the liturgies. And according to some board members that we have interviewed, the board is not allowed to interfere what is going on in, in the church. But at other times, the responsibilities and acts of the board reach even into the church. It's the board that usually is responsible for the administration when it comes to members who want a baptism or a wedding or a funeral. And one priest told us about some sort of conflict when the board wanted to say no to a baptism, when the person who wanted the baptism was not a member of the congregation and had not paid the administrative, administrative costs for the baptism. And quite often such rituals are included in the membership um, or with a re reduced price, but not if you are not a member of the congregation. So there could, could be conflicts like that, uh, even when it uh, relates to uh, religious rituals that is normally the domain of the priest. And, um, but sometimes the board and the priest seems to cooperate very well with, with high respect for each other. And it might even at times be the board and the priest who want to turn the congregation and its routines and practices in a certain, perhaps more liberal direction. And then it's the congregation uh, in contrast or perhaps certain members of the congregation who are against such changes. So it's not always that the priest and the board are against each other. They could also be, in a sense, on the same side and the congregation uh, on the other. Um, 
but at other times there are tensions between the board and the priest. In a few cases, board members are quite critical of how, of how certain priests conduct themselves or how certain priests, in their view, act too independently, like little emperors, in their view, uh, in the local congregation, and who does not, in their view, seem to understand that they are formally subservient uh, to the congregation and to the board. And even if there are and have been strong priests who at least according to critical members of the board has governed a congregation with an iron hand, uh, this does not work in congregations with, with a strong board. In the words of one board member, he says like this, uh, we have uh, a previous experience of a priest who when they reach a position do not do more or less uh, do like they wish, but this does not work in a congregation. The priest should, of course, act in a consultation with the board. And, um, and in many cases, there is no problem at all, but in certain cases, there are tensions like this between the board and the priest. Finally, how could one understand these changes, or, or how could one interpret these changes in organization from the earliest years where the priest seems to have been in charge to the present situation where it's mainly the annual meeting and the executive board that governs the local congregation and where the priest is excluded from decisions except when it comes to the rituals and the liturgy. Um, the present situation is also sometimes presented in our interviews in stark contrast to stories about the church in the Middle East, when the priest, uh, quotation, governed everything. So to a large extent, it's a question about religious authority, and not the least, the impact and the scope of this religious authority on when it comes to the governing of the congregation. And in a series of... Uh, lectures, uh, a series of articles from the 1990s. The American sociologist Mark Chavez has described a similar shift in power in a number of American Protestant denominations in terms of secularization. Chavez speaks about a double and or a parallel organization structure within religious organizations uh, in general. Uh, on the one hand, a religious authority structure, and on the other, an administrative agency structure. While the first takes form in the clergy or the hierarchy, it's the layman that uh, is responsible uh, for the second one, the administration. And while the first one is direct directed inwardly and try to control the religious elements of the organization, the second structure is directed externally towards the surrounding world, and while the first one gets its authority from the tradition, the second one gets its support from uh, legislation. Chavez shows how the traditional religious authority through this shift is losing ground to the administrative layman structure. Uh, and now he's speaking about the Protestant denominations. Uh, and the way this shift undermines the scope of the, tradi of the traditional religious authority uh, 
Chavez interprets in terms of secularization. Um, and secularization is, of course, a highly con complex concept and also a debated con uh, concept. And there are, of course, uh, scholars who are very critical against this concept and reject it. But there are also other scholars who still find it uh, useful to describe certain changes in society when it comes to religious organizations. And among th these latter scholars, uh, secularization is not necessarily about decreasing religiosity, but just as well about changes in religious authority or uh, in religious authority of a, in relation to a religious organization. On a society level, when a religious organization is losing its impact on other sectors in society, such as education and healthcare, one could speak about secularization. And internally, when the religious authority and its impact is decreasing within the religious organization, one could also speak about secularization. And, and I need to underscore, this is not about that the organization gets less religious, but it's, it's, it's a change when it comes to how the organization is. Um, it's a change in the religious organization, uh, and, and you can call that secularization. So one might describe the changes that has, as far as I can understand, uh, happened uh, when it comes to the Syriac Orthodox Church and the, the uh, on both on the national level and on the congregational level. Uh, if you compare the earliest period and how the organization, uh, what the organization looked like today, and you can um, interpret that in terms of a, a sort of internal secularization. When the religious authority of the priests, um, the scope of the religious authority has declined in, in certain aspects. It's not that it's, it's not a complete loss of authority. Uh, it's evident that many of our respondents could, t could still speak about priests with great respect or ex very exemplary role models, etc., etc. But just in the sense of a declining scope of the religious authority. In that sense, one might speak about it, this development as a, a sort of secularization. Um, or a gradual shift in power where the democratically elected board of laymen and the annual meeting are often in charge on the local level instead of a, uh, um, instead of a priest and uh, a, an annual meeting and a board that has the power to remove the priest who is employed by the congregation and under the authority of the board and the congregation with a delegated mission to be responsible more or less exclusively for the religious services and rituals in the needs of the layman. 
Thank you, Henrik. And now Andreas Smolla from Catholic Private University in Linz will kind of give you know, is this what we see in Austria too, or other reflections? Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me here, here and inviting me. It's some years uh, back that I have done my research on uh, the Syriac Orthodox Church in Austria together. It was a, a research project that I also did on the Coptic Orthodox Church in Austria. Uh, one reason was it's a lot, the, the communities are a lot smaller. It's uh, to get, Today it's about the Syriac Orthodox Church in Austria would count around 6,000 members. And I mean, the Coptic now is, is bigger, it's about 12,000. Uh, and the re one, another reason for it was there were, there were no studies on these two communities. And I did this um, at the Department of Church History at the University of Salzburg, same department as Ahur is, is uh, working. And so uh, what I'm doing here, and I'm very thankful for the paper of Henrik. It, it would have helped me a lot uh, back then with my research, uh, especially about how you theorize uh, religious uh, organization and religious authority. It gave me a lot of, um, um, yeah, to think about. Now it's too late, but maybe in the future I will have another, <laughs> I will go back to this research. Uh, I will improvise a lot and give you some, share some thoughts with you. How much time do I have? 15 minutes. Okay, yeah, maybe less, yeah, yeah. Um, and there are some things where I can't really compare with your study uh, when it comes to especially to the, the executive boards that I have looked less on in, in the case for Austria. Um, but um, as an historian, I will take a look at the beginnings of, of the, the community in, in Austria, how it established and, and especially on what you have mentioned here, uh, external actors, internal actors, I found this quite helpful to distinguish and, and yeah, and I will give a few insights also into my data that I have collected. I, for, for um, yeah, the methods that I used, it was mainly, I have to say, life story interviews uh, with community members, um, with the older generation, if you want, if you can say those who arrived already in the 60s, 70s, um, and then also um, half of the sample was with, yeah, so-called second generation uh, old people, yeah, uh, still born in the Middle East or in Turkey, but more or less uh, raised in in Austria. Um, and then I did interviews with, with external actors and I also had access to archival resources, but not from civic authorities as you had, but more to Catholic archives, um, which was quite, yeah, something I could not expect, but quite, and I, I, I will tell you something that uh, is coming from these archives. Um, so just a few words about the congregations. It's three congregations in Austria today. The first was founded in 1974, St. Moore Ephraim, and is still existing and is still very influential and, and, the, and the largest one. And the other one, St. Peter and Paul and St. Mary, they were founded in the 1990s. So it's, it's a process. And then in the 2010, around 2010, and it was not because of the size of the community, but more of internal 
uh, conflicts and, and, and issues. And as we have heard or we know from other stories, it's, and someone already mentioned also about village identities and also they played out um, very extensively in, in, in Vienna. Uh, so Syriac Orthodox communities is centered uh, in Vienna. All the three congregations have their congregation in Vienna and also living in or around Vienna. Um, and so, and uh, in my interviews, there was a lot of, and I talked about this and I also wrote, wrote an article about this, it was a lot about conflict. And I, I said it once that I was so surprised to hear so much about internal issues and conflicts and struggles and how in splits and and yeah, and it brings me to this question of organization, uh, religious organization and, um, and religious authority. And, and, and I, what I did, I, and, and, and it, it, it raises a lot of ethical issues. Um, and it was so difficult and, and a lot of it also is published in a way. And of course, if you have only three congregations, it's difficult to say, it's, the material stays anonymous. That was not possible in a way, especially if you have people that are still active in the community. But by the fact that a lot of it is published and talked of in articles, in newspapers and so on, so it gave me also a kind of a backup and also gave me somehow also uh, the responsibility to put things that are published or are in newspapers to put it in perspective from a scholarly view. So that was my um, approach to that. But yeah, that's... What was interesting, if I still one word about these conflicts, that I could see that horizontal conflicts were intertwined with vertical conflicts. So a lot of local uh, divisions that occurred along the line of villages had another line of conflict that had to do with a conflict about religious authority on the level of the diocese, because it was the moment when dioceses were created in Europe, uh, for Central Europe, and there was still the patriarch in Damascus. And the allegiances or conflicts that had to do whom you would listen to more, the bishop in Germany or in the Netherlands, or to the patriarch, and which group would be stronger or, uh, and, and there was then, uh, especially in the 1990s and early 2000s, a strong conflict around uh, uh, between the patriarch and, and, and bishops. And this also would be, uh, in a way, you could see the, the same lines of conflicts you would see, would be the local conflict. That the same people from the same village would be with the bishop and the other ones would be with the patriarch, for instance. So that's what I mean, and, and, and it gets very complicated. The same like is the, the long, strong identity debate about being a Syrian or being Syriac or Aramean in, in, in the German context. And also here, and this conflict was less, uh, was less, it was not the same as in Sweden. There was no, so it was kind of, more moderate in a way, I would say. Uh, but still, the lines of conflict very often would be uh, along persons, village conflict lines. Uh, and this has to do then, of, has an impact on religious authority, of course. And um, 
and and then uh, then there are the external actors, and that's what I would like to talk about a little bit because uh, it it somehow and, and the external uh, actors could be civic, it could be the state, and I could talk a lot about uh, how uh, the, the, the system uh, of how religions are. Uh, the place of religions, of recognized religions in Austria, because that's quite different from Sweden, and it plays a very important role also for the establishment of these migrant churches, so it's not only valid for the Syriac Orthodox Church. Uh, but then there's another external actor that is very prominent, especially in the early period, which is the Catholic Church. Uh, Austria, especially in the 70s, 80s, 90s, it was very dominant, was, was uh, very strong. It is the, the church of the majority. I think it's still like in the 70s, 90% of Austria would be Catholic, and the Catholic church would have a very strong role in society. And, um, and the Catholic church plays a major role in helping churches like the Syriac Orthodox Church to establish but they don't know much at the very beginning of these internal issues and also about the internal organization of these churches because they mostly deal with the patriarch in Damascus and maybe some bishops then. Uh, and, and this has to do with their mission as a Catholic church. Uh, at a moment of time, where ecumenical relations are very important. And, and this has to do in a way with uh, religious authority and also normative aspects. Uh, it's not always about persons and power and money. It's also about these normative aspects that are very strong in the Catholic Church. And um, I only came to realize that it is a moment in the 70s where there is a great enthusiasm in the Catholic Church uh, with regards to ecumenical relations, and especially with regard to the Oriental Orthodox churches because there has been, was a lot of progress in the, the ecumenical dialogue. And in Vienna, we really have the case that uh, the cardinal back then, Franz Koenig, uh, was very interested in, it, in uh, ecumenical relations. And he founded uh, a, a, a Catholic institution, which was Pro Oriente Foundation. Uh, and within Pro Oriente, which still exists today, you can see that it's also uh, it's, I mean, the cardinal is at the head of it, but it's, the, the work is done by lay, and a Catholic lays, and you could see it's, it's the elite. And a lot of them had political offices before becoming a member of Pro Oriente in the government. And also you can see that the Catholic Church is as strong, is, 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 is in a way also uh, linked to the Christian Socialist uh, Party. <coughs> And so a lot of people working in Proriente, they were coming from the diplomatic corps, they were ministers in governments, so they had a lot of knowledge. They, had a lot, they, they knew their business, and they were very important to helping churches like the Syriac Orthodox to, uh, to establish themselves. And I took a look at the archives of Proriente, and if I only take like uh, protocols from 1974, it's quite interesting how quickly and how swiftly the Syriac Orthodox Church opens its first parish and congregation and, 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 and 
an infrastructure is put into place. Uh, and it has nothing to do with the executive board. And it, it, and it means a lot for the local priest. Um, I found that in January 1974, uh, the local priest was uh, consecrated a few months before in Lebanon. And there was a meeting, and the, the priest, uh, Emmanuel Aydin, he asked Proriente for help to have three things. It was a church, Catholic church to, for mass, a community hall, and uh, an apartment for himself. And so, and then Proriente, so with the archdiocese, they, they were, yeah, just, they, they did the negotiations and the work, and they were, and the archdiocese, they said, okay, we need a letter from the, from the patriarch so that we see that the patriarch wants to found a community in Austria. And a month later, we have the letter and we have, uh, we have uh, the first, two months later, we have the first mass in a Catholic church. We have the, the local council, the executive board formed. And, uh, and after mass, the members of Proriente participating in the mass, we have still talks about, yeah, the priest needs an apartment and needs to be paid and, um, yeah, and a place for the community. And the archdiocese, yeah, they see a problem because it could be a, a first, if they pay the priest, it could be others could do, wish to do the same. So they saw an obstacle, but it, it, within a few months, all the issues are solved. So. I, the priest gets an apartment for his family. Uh, they have a church and they have a community room and he's also on the payroll of the archdiocese. And this was for his whole career, if you want to say. Uh, and, and yeah, but it, so you can see that in this process, there's a lot of support by the Catholic church and it is driven by the very, it's not a noisy engine, it's just driven by this, from what I can see, this ecumenical impact and interest and, and, and enthusiasm at that period of time. It explains a lot about the allegiance of priest Aydin he had for all his life to the Catholic Church. And, um, but it also created a lot of uh, uh, yeah, potential uh, uh, conflict uh, uh, in a way, um, and um, but what I was asking, did it also raise his religious authority about his local community? And I'm not sure. Maybe not, maybe not. Uh, and of course, I, I, then I would have to talk a lot about how things went on until t today. Uh, there's a, an interesting development. But uh, what the Catholic Church was not aware that with this, let's call it privileges, that this would strengthen the role of the priest at a certain level and maybe that's not a similarity, but a difference to, to, to the cases you've studied in Sweden. Uh, but it also created a lot of tensions, uh, also or potential for tensions, because on a local level, 
the community maybe had less, less influence on the priest in a way. Uh, but, but what is interesting, it didn't harm the religious authority of the Catholic Church within the Syriac community. I, I cannot prove it, but it's something that I was also thinking about. And, but it, it was my impression in a lot of discussions and meetings that within the community and all the members, they had a very high esteem of the Catholic Church and how they were seen as Catholic, the Cardinal, last one and today, and how they supported the Syriac Orthodox Church and also the way, it, the syst how the, the role of the church in society that you could have religious education in state schools and public school that you could study on state university to become an instructor of religious. So it, also there were a lot of conflicts around the local priest and, and, and there were two rifts with a, with a split of uh, one congregation than another. Uh, this was not to the harm of the Catholic Church in a way. That's what I, I think it would be interesting to go further that, down that road. So that I, I end with a lot of questions in a way, but it, the way you put it, the frame and 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 uh, for me it was so interesting to see and and that's and I tried to yeah to see a bit the specific uh, yeah maybe that's specific about the Austrian case, but because I think there are not too many countries where you have this strong role of an external actor, which is not that strong any longer anymore today, but it was back then it was because it was uh, the Catholic Church was, as I said, also very influential uh, through the network to the Christian Socialist uh, Party. And that is also important, but it is another another uh, thing that <laughs> that I will not touch upon here. So I think I stop here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.